Well, hello, friends. Welcome to the Capital City Christian Church podcast. My name is Chris. I'm going to be your host today. If this is your first time listening, I would love to chat with you. So send me an email at hello at capitalcitychristian.org. Last week, we started a brand new series for the fall called Life, a Hero's Story. We're splitting it up into a couple different acts because we think every hero story has echoes of our own story. The first act is about the rescue. Most of the time when we put ourselves in a hero story, we're the ones doing the rescuing. But this series has us as the one being rescued. Today, we're looking at what makes a hero rescue somebody in the first place. Before the action, before the rescue, a hero starts to become aware of something everyone else is unaware of. They see what others can't, they feel what others can't, and they find intolerable what other people have already become accustomed to. Our senior minister, Dr. Stephen Doc Pattison, is ready, so let's dive into today's message about the compassion of a hero. I don't know if you guys are like me. I, mean, I just flat out love hero stories. I like going to the movies and I just love hero stories. Fantasy stories like Superman and Batman and the Avengers and X-Men. I get all excited when one of those is coming up. Sci-fi heroes like Luke Skywalker, or Han Solo, or even Ellen Ripley fighting aliens. I love those kind of movies. Noble warriors like Hawkeye and The Last of the Mohicans or Ethan Hunt and Mission Impossible or the Jason Bourne series. Get a kick out of those things. They stir something in us, don't they? They touch something in us. John McClane... Sarah Connor, Indiana Jones, Aslan. It's a great danger. There's some great evil. And, and then just when it seems like all is lost, there's no hope, there he is, there she is doing something heroic, sometimes a great personal cost. Sometimes we miss the biggest pieces. See, we tend to focus on what the hero does, and we miss why they do what they do. There's something that always goes before. There's something that always serves as a catalyst. Sometimes the hero sees what others just aren't seeing. We talked about that last week. Sometimes the hero feels what others aren't feeling, or maybe they just refuse to tolerate what others have learned to tolerate. That's this morning. And then the hero does what heroes do, whatever the cost. That's next week. See, it's not just what a hero does, it's also what he sees and it's what he feels that leads him to do what he does. Desmond Doss, true story, pacifist combat medic in World War II. The Japanese drive his unit off of Hacksaw Ridge and he hears the cries of the wounded. So all night long he sneaks around the battlefield rescuing soldiers, dragging them to the edge of the escarpment and lowering them down by rope. He rescues 75 soldiers, receiving for that the Medal of Honor. What he did was incredibly dangerous, unbelievably hard, heroic. But he saw the wounded. He couldn't tolerate the thought of leaving them behind. So he keeps praying, God, just help me save one more. If you haven't seen the movie, it's a 10, by the way, guys. Oscar Schindler. He sees what's happening to the Jews in Poland under the Nazis. I suppose a lot of Germans did. He felt deeply inside that it was wrong, which I suppose a lot of Germans did. But he couldn't tolerate it. Couldn't tolerate what others were trying to tolerate. And he does something at tremendous personal cost, at tremendous personal risk, tormented by the idea that he could have done just a little bit more. Again, if you haven't seen the movie, it's a 10. And there aren't many 10s. They stir something inside of us, touch us, something that's already inside of us. We take those themes of seeing what others don't see and 
refusing to tolerate what others tolerate and doing what others don't do, and we just push them right into our superhero stories. It's the reasons we love. Stories like Superman, the Man of Steel, born on Krypton, sent to Earth as a baby, raised in Kansas, learns to love us humans. So whenever someone is threatening us, he fights them, sometimes at tremendous personal risk. I love the Wonder Woman series, Mightiest of the Amazons, raised in a virtual utopia, but convinced she had the responsibility to protect the rest of us mere humans. Even when she learned how messy we are, she loves us anyway and was willing to fight to protect us to the death if necessary. They see what others don't see. They feel what others don't feel. They won't tolerate what others have learned to tolerate. And so they do what heroes do, whatever the cost. So, what do you see when you look around you? What do you see when you look in a mirror? If you're seeing clearly, you see a mess. The world's a mess. All of us are messy. I know there's a lot of good too. But all of us are weird mixtures of good and bad, beauty and depravity, nobility and decadence. All of us, every single one of us was made in the image of God and every one of us does a whole lot to mar that image of God in us. We're a mess in so many different ways. And so the story that I started last week is really our story metaphorically. Here's a recap. Twelve years ago, the British Medical Journal did a poll trying to identify the single most important medical milestone since 1840, the year the journal started to be published. Essentially, what's the biggest medical milestone of the last 200 years? They identified 15 possibilities, and then they voted. Third place went to anesthesia. I had minor surgery on my face last week, cut out another skin cancer. They made about a three-inch incision down the side of my face, stitched it up. I am a huge fan of anesthesia, right? <laughs> I really am. Second place went to antibiotics. Anesthesia has saved me from pain many, many times. Antibiotics have saved my life more than once. You a big fan of antibiotics? Bet you are. First place surprised me, sanitation. They found that clean water and toilets have done more for our health than anesthesia, antibiotics, vaccines, x-rays, CAT scans, MRIs, you name it clean water, and toilets. But here's the deal they found. Even though the sanitary revolution started back in the 1800s, according to the British Medical Journal, still about one billion people in our world lack clean water and safe sewage disposal, about a billion. And because they lack toilets, people do their business outside, often in some common area, which I suppose is better than just squatting wherever. And the negative impact on health is devastating. They estimated that 361,000 children a year die from diarrhea alone. Add on stuff like cholera, dysentery, hepatitis, typhoid, hookworm, roundworm, schistosomiasis, polio. It's a mess, they thought. And if you talk to people of the World Health Organization, they think the mess is even bigger than the journal found. They tell us that 2.1 billion people lack safe drinking water at home, and more than twice as many lack safe sanitation. 
So, what do you do? What do you do when you see a problem that big? What do you do when you see a mess that messy? What does seeing a mess do to you? And what do you choose to do about it? Do messy things disgust you? You find it repulsive, so you lean away. Look at, look at that crap in the water. They're drinking. It's disgusting. Look at the poop that's all around them. It's repulsive. Or maybe instead of disgust or revulsion, maybe what you feel is just pity. Breaks your heart that people are actually drinking that water and living in that messiness. It breaks your heart right before you change the channel. Scroll to the next page or turn your back and walk away. Or maybe you're not trying to turn your back and walk away. Maybe you just see the problem is so overwhelming. Over 2 billion people without clean water. Over 4 billion people without safe toilets. How do you even start to respond to a problem that big? Or maybe we don't give it too much thought because it's just too far away. Out of sight, out of mind. Most of the problem is 10,000 miles away. And unless a problem is right smack in front of us, unless a problem is our problem, it's hard to work up so much emotion, isn't it? Or maybe, maybe we've just become self-absorbed, self-centered, narcissistic twits. We live in a selfie world. It's not my problem. It's their problem. NPR published an article just a few months ago, April the 15th. They titled it, The End of Empathy. It's part of a series that they're calling Civility Wars. They've actually been tracking this stuff for quite a few years. How do people respond to problems like this? Do we have compassion? Do we have empathy? They ask questions like these. It's not, how do you respond? It's not really my problem if others are in trouble and, and need help. How do you respond to that? Or, I always try to imagine what I would feel like if I were in their place. Do you ask questions like that? And what they found is that we are actually losing our compassion. We are verifiably more self-absorbed, self-centered, and narcissistic. Their polluted water, their lack of toilets, it's their problem. It's not mine. And others of us just become jaded. We have seen so much pain that we've developed calluses, calloused eyes, calloused hearts. Can a hero be jaded? Can a hero have calloused eyes or a calloused heart? Well, several international organizations decided they'd try to do something about the lack of safe drinking water and the lack of safe sewage disposal, and they started all of these clean water projects and building latrines. They'd go into these villages and build toilets, and they started building these communal latrines. One group is called WaterAid. Their mission was to change lives with three things, water, toilets, and hygiene. And they funded a bunch of latrines for villages in Bangladesh, and then they invited an expert by the name of Dr. Kamal Kar to go in and evaluate their work. What he found were great latrines, well-designed, well-built, and there were even a few people who used them. But, Dr. Carr said, he'd go around the edges of the villages and around every village there was still poop everywhere. Everywhere he went, he had to try to avoid it. Even with the latrines, they still did their business in these common areas outside their town or wherever. 
And as soon as the rainy seasons would come, it would simply wash that stuff through their village. You see, he discovered it wasn't enough to build toilets or even for a few people to use them. They had to change normal. How do you do that? How do you change someone's normal? That's hard. See, the experts had thought it was a hardware problem. If we can build enough latrines, we can solve the problem. The problem went way deeper. How do you fix a problem that the people won't admit they have? How do you fix a problem that people don't see? They don't understand how messy they are, and they don't understand how dangerous their mess is. In fact, some of the people actually tore the latrines down and used the parts for their own little projects, something they thought was more useful. Dr. Carr and his team would ask the people why they didn't use them. They got responses like this, why would I poop in there? It's nicer than my house. How do you fix a problem when people won't admit they have a problem, even though it's killing them? And it really is our story. How do you get people to accept rescue when they won't admit they're sinners? Unless we can see the mess we're in, unless it breaks our heart, unless we can see where that mess is taking us, how are we going to be receptive when God tries to rescue us? So what would you do next? Did you do anything at all? Would you keep trying to fix the problem? I mean, you tried. You tried to help. You tried to fix their problem. They just blew it off. They're still content to live in their filth. Would it disgust you? Now would you think them repulsive? Or maybe this time it would be pity. It, it, it does break your heart that they rejected your help. It, it breaks your heart that they choose to live in their squalor. But maybe it's time to turn your back and walk away, Right? Maybe it's time to focus your attention on people who are more receptive to your help. Or maybe even to just focus on yourself for a while, you and yours. What would a hero do? What would God do? See, here's the problem. The Bible says we were created in the image of God. It says that. And we're different than the animals, we humans. We were created in the image of God, which means that in some way we are actually like God. We're not gods but in some way we are like God. But we flip it around. We figure that if we are in the image of God, then God must be in the image of us, right? He must be like us. Stronger maybe, smarter maybe, older maybe, but kind of like us. That must be who God is. And if their messiness disgusts me, it must absolutely disgust God. Because God is kind of like me, only on steroids, right? If your sin disgusts him, or if your sin disgusts you, then your sin must utterly disgust God. I mean, if you could see God's eyes when he's looking at you in your messiness, what would you see? Disgust? Revulsion? A legalistic, angry God? Is that how you see God? Would you see pity in his eyes? tried to help you. He tried to point you towards a better way. He tried to rescue you and you wouldn't listen. For some reason, God gives us the ability to blow him off, at least for now. So do you see pity in his eyes as he turns his back and walks away? 
Or maybe what you see is a God who is so big and we are so little, it's just simply unimaginable that God would care at all. And back in the days of Jesus, the philosophers could not imagine a transcendent God actually caring about pathetic little creatures like us. The idea that God could cry was absurd to them. The idea that you could make God cry was absurd to them. If you could make God cry, then in some way you have power over God and you're just a creature and he's the transcendent God, right? It's going to diminish him. They figure God must be the unmoved mover, kind of like the cosmic accountant, passionless, pitiless, and perfect. We still think that way. We know this universe is immensely big, immensely powerful. Maybe two trillion galaxies in our universe, a few hundred billion stars each, maybe 13 and a half billion years old. And if God really is eternal, and if God really is everywhere, and God really is all powerful, then he must be bigger than that. Older than the universe, infinitely older. Infinitely more powerful than all of the forces in the universe combined. And if he really does know everything about every single piece of cosmic string, could God actually care about you? A creature as flawed and as powerless and as tiny as you or me? And the idea that a God that big would care about someone like us so small is absurd. But would any of these human-like responses to our messiness make God a hero? If we just discuss God, if he just pities us as he walks away, if he's just too big, too far away, too perfect to really care, what would a hero do? Well, the Bible tells us that God sent his son. Now, it barely fits. We can barely fathom that. God sent his son into this messy, messy little village that we call home. A village without clean water, a village without toilets, fouled by a mess that we've all contributed to. And God knew that. It came anyway. Do you have any idea how crazy that sounds? Especially if you understand that what that really means is that God himself came into our world. You see, we believe Jesus is God the creator God. He's the eternal, all-powerful God. He's God in a bod, right? What is there about us that our mess would elicit that kind of a response from our creator? That a God that big would actually care for creatures so little and so broken. I mean, he's got galaxies to take care of and God sends his son here we get so lost in the enormity of God, we just can't believe that he'd actually care about broken, insignificant creatures like us. So God proves it by coming. And when he gets here, what does God see and what does God feel and what does God do? Well, he shows us. One time Jesus is walking along a road with his disciples and they see a funeral procession coming the other way. And it's hmm, body of a dead boy being carried out, the only son of a mother who's a widow. He sees an insignificant nobody like you or me. And Jesus looks at her, 
says his heart went out to her, overflowing with compassion. The message says his heart broke. God cared about someone that insignificant, it says. Matthew, who was, who was there, tells us that Jesus was going around telling that God had a better way for people. He was healing their sick and bigger than all that. When Jesus saw the crowds, he saw the crowds of broken, self-absorbed, insignificant little nobodies like us to God. And he had compassion on us because we were confused and helpless, the desperately needing rescue. Why would God care? But he does. One time Jesus' earthly cousin was murdered and God grieved, go figure. God the Son tried to get away from the crowds for a time, for a little alone time with God his Father. It didn't work. The crowds discovered where he was going and they mobbed him. Because sometimes our pain prevents us from seeing another person's pain, even his. And Jesus doesn't scold us. He doesn't try to hide from us. He just got back at it. He's broken people, broke God's heart. So he healed us and he taught us and he fed us. Later on, Jesus is going along and he sees these two blind guys. Now understand, in that world, they didn't make any kind of special provision for people with disabilities. They just tossed them out. They were the nobodies of the nobodies, worthless. In fact, they believed that God had already tossed them out as worthless. That's why they were disabled. And these two blind guys got God's attention. Crowd kept on trying to shut them up. And Matthew says, Matthew was there. He says, Jesus was deeply moved. He felt this intense pity for these two nobodies. He tells us God cared for these guys. Doesn't stop there. Says he touched their eyes. God touched their eyes and immediately they could see because God can do stuff like that. Near the end of his physical stay on earth, Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem. He was on his way to die in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the capital city of the Jews, the Jews who Jesus, God, had tried to work with for millennia to change the world. These people kept messing up, and Luke says, as Jesus came closer to Jerusalem and he saw the city ahead, the city that was about to kill him, he began to weep. God began to cry for these precious little misfits. Then he says, God says, how I wish that you of all people would understand the way to peace. But it's too late now. Peace is hidden from your eyes. Broke his heart. Luke chapter 15, a very famous chapter. Jesus, the son of God, tries to give us a picture, all of these pictures of the heart of his father. He says, God is like a crazy farmer who loses a single sheep out of a hundred searches and he searches and he searches till he finds this just one stupid errant sheep just one of us and then he says God is like this poor old woman with ten coins she loses just one coin and she searches and she searches and she cleans and hunts until she finds one coin that is so precious to her Jesus says you're like that to God huh and then he says, God is like a crazy father of a miserable son. Instead of writing the kid off, he waits and he looks and he longs for his kid until he recognizes that the kid has finally seen what a mess he is and he runs, God runs to embrace his kid. God is like that, Jesus says, and I'll prove it to you. And he goes to a cross. We get the word compassion from a Latin word, compassio, to suffer with. 
when you hurt, God suffers with you. Kind of like the word sympathy from the Greek, soon, together with, and pathos, to suffer. To suffer with. He not only sees, but he cares. He has sympathy. Go figure. Hebrew word is racham, which also can be translated womb. It describes the feeling of a mother towards her baby. Do you actually think God feels like that towards you? The infinite, almighty, creator God, like a mama on steroids? The Greek word is splunk known, which literally means your guts, your innards, stuff like your heart, your liver, your kidneys, your lungs. You know why they use that word? Because when you feel deep emotion, that's where you feel it, down in the pit of your stomach. See, the ancients thought the brain was kind of the seat of your thinking, and they thought the guts is where you did your feeling. And splunk known, that's the word they kept choosing to describe the heart of Jesus. That's the word they kept using to describe the heart of God. Compassion. He not only sees, but he cares deeply. So when you look at God, you see disgust and revulsion and anger is in his eyes, especially when you're at your messiest. And it's not God's face you're looking at. Do you see pity as he shakes his head and walks away because you're just so stubborn and you keep sinning the sins over and over again? Then it's not God's face you're looking at. Do you see an unfeeling, apathetic God, passionless, pitiless, and perfect, so big, so powerful that he can hardly be bothered with an insignificant little twit like you? If you see any of those things, you're not looking into the face of God. You see, where do you think our notion of a hero comes from? Why do you think all these hero stories touch us, stir us, something so deep inside us? It's because they're our story. If we understand the part we play. They're our story. But we are not the heroes of our story. You see, too often messiness causes us to lean away from people. So how is it that our messiness causes our God to lean in? Why is it so hard for us to believe, to accept, to embrace that our God could lean in? Maybe because our God is still too small. Maybe because we try to recreate God in our image. And we figure if it's difficult for us to learn to love someone so messy, then God must find it even harder, right? No. No. He's God. Matthew, and Matthew stayed right by Jesus' side until he understood the heart of God. Matthew says of Jesus, a bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory. A fragile, broken reed like you or me will be safe in his hands, he says. An unsteady, wavering, staggering, struggling little flame like you or me, he says, God keeps nursing. New Living Translation makes it plainer. It says he will not crush those who are weak. He will not quench the smallest hope until he brings full justice with his final victory. Two thousand years ago, people like us stirred the heart of Jesus. 
And people like us still stir, stir the heart of God. And Jesus proved it. His gut is wrenched. His heart is torn open. Never forget that when we're talking about the compassion of Jesus, we're talking about the compassion of the infinite, transcendent, almighty God. That is who Jesus was. The compassion of Jesus is the compassion of God himself. And Jesus is saying to you and to me this morning, never be so foolish as to measure my compassion for you in terms of your compassion for each other. Don't be so silly as to compare your thin, pallid, wavering, capricious, fickle, moody human compassion with mine because I am God and not man. Do you believe that? One of the greatest theologians of the 20th century, a guy named Paul Tillich, he defined faith like this. He says, faith is the courage to accept acceptance. Faith is the courage to accept acceptance. It is the courage to accept God's acceptance. It's the courage to believe that Jesus, knowing your whole life story, knowing every skeleton in your closet, every moment of sin, shame, dishonesty, every moment of degraded love, knowing right now how your faith struggles, your prayer life is feeble, your discipleship is inconsistent, that he loves you and accepts you as you are, not as you should be, because you will never, ever, ever be as you should be. You can come to church and sing songs, take communion. You can go home and you can read your Bible every day. But until that day, you accept that you are accepted by God, loved by God. You have not yet fully believed in our God. And I can tell you guys that this has been the biggest struggle of my spiritual life. And I know that it's a struggle for a lot of you. But it's the Word of God. It's the promise of God. It's Jesus Sometimes the hero sees what others can't see. That was last week. Sometimes the hero feels what others don't feel. Doesn't tolerate what others have learned to tolerate. That's today. And then the hero does what heroes do, no matter what the cost. That's next week. And that's where the story of God blows our imaginations. Would you pray with me, please? Father, help us to understand that it doesn't matter who we are. It doesn't matter how messy we are. It doesn't matter whether we try to justify ourselves or just see ourselves as unjustifiable. We're all broken. None of us has the strength, the power, the wisdom to make ourselves into what we want to be, much less what you made us to be. And yet, for some incredible reason, you care. For that, we give you thanks. And I pray that if there be those in this room that have not yet tasted the amazing power of your grace, that they will not leave this room until they do so. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Guys, in just a moment, I'm going to sing a song, and I'm going to sit right down here. And if you want to come talk and pray with me, I'd love to chat with you. As I said, there's an elder in our prayer room. They'd love to pray with you. If you've got a decision to make, if Jesus is not the Lord of your life, let's get it done. Let's start what we were made for.